Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places a dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed Episode 190 is recorded live February 20th, 2014. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson, where we are getting soggy and wet. Joining me this week, we have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm just great, Darren. Thanks. <laughs> and we also have a very special guest. We have Steve Lewis. How are you doing today, Steve? I am fantastic. Thank you. And how we met Steve Lewis, uh, Jim Schultz and I did a, I guess you call it a try and dive on some rebreathers, and Steve was kind enough to give us an introduction into that little world. And, and you survived. We did. Oh, you were awesome. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, and I think you've, you've dove a rebreather a couple times, haven't you? Yeah, a, a time or two. Yep. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's one of these, it's another obsession, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> it's easy, and I find, I find the older I get, the more I like that warm, moist air. And, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, well, you guys I, seem to have fun on them. I mean, you were. Yeah. You oh, were I loved it. Around, you were scampering around like a couple of veterans down there. <laughs> we, we were noisy divers, but uh, I sure yeah. loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah be, we beeped a little bit. <laughs> yeah, there was. There were a couple of alarms going off. But yeah. Nothing serious. No, that, but that, that was that was great. We certainly appreciate it. Yeah, I need to do it again, but I think the next time I actually need to to buy my own rig. Well, you know that that's a great way to do it. You have to, I think, with any other piece of expensive kit, there's got to be some cost justification. I don't know what the situation is in your house, but in my house, even though I do this stuff for a living, I still have to turn around to the boss and say, you know, it's a good investment. It's going to pay <laughs> off. So uh, I think uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there pushing rebreathers like they're the best thing and the most necessary thing. But I think if you've if you're a photographer, you know what they're great. Um, cave diver, fantastic. Doing deep wreck dives and using a lot of helium, they're they're great. But I, I still have this this kind of um, a difficult to compute kind of assessment when someone says they're great for the average recreational diver because you know what they're very expensive if the average recreational diver has just won the um, powerball <laughs> then yeah yeah but uh, it's an expensive piece of kit and i think you do have to have a pretty good reason to uh, to invest in it yeah it- to me it's a disposable income item for a standard recreational diver Mm-hmm. If you've got the disposable income that something like that's not going to, you know, hurt you and you have expensive toys, this is just another expensive toy that has some great benefits to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when when you as you said though, when you start to get into dollars and cents justification, uh, you've got to be spending a lot of time in deep water uh or 
sneaking up on an awful lot of marine life to justify the expense. Well, the sneaking up on marine life is, is one of those intangibles. You know, how do you put a dollar value on that one? Well, you know, there are a couple of experiences that you, that you have on them where you really have been able to sneak up on it or it snuck up on you because you're not bubbling like a diver normally uh, that they see. Um, those kind of experiences are, you know, to use the uh, term that a certain credit card uses, they are priceless. But, um, you know, the reality is that if you've got a Harley Davidson in your garage at home, and if you've got one of those machines that keeps your Rolex and Breitling watches wound on your desk <laughs> at work, uh, you're a good candidate for, uh, for just buying one. You know, let's just buy a rebreather this week and we'll see how it works out. See, see what I'm, if, how, how I'm trying to justify it is my wife has had these little four-legged things that run around the back of the property and then her and the daughter go and jump. And I yeah, think if horses, I figure, horses are expensive. yeah. And if I think if I figure what I've spent on horses over the last thirty years, I could have bought probably twenty or thirty rebreathers. <laughs> yeah, quite likely. So that that's going to be my leverage. I'm going to try the ROI calculator, which I'm going to have mm-hmm. to cook the numbers a little bit, but it's probably going to come down to a. I, I think I I deserve one. You know the email address. Uh, send me your worksheet. I'll check it out. And I'll add uh, a couple of, you know, uh, a couple of line items to get you uh, increase your chances of it being accepted by the boss. Let's yeah. just say that one. Yeah. Well, Steve, uh, for the for our listeners who may not uh, know your history, when did you get started in diving? Well. Um, I got back into diving in about 89. I had originally uh, tried it when I was a kid uh, living in England. Um, and I, you know, if someone twists my arm, I'll sometimes say to them, yeah, you know, I, I first learned to dive in 1974. Um, but got back into it after moving to North America. And um, uh, what got me back into it was actually reef ecology. I really, really... Um, wanted to find out more about what happens on a coral reef and obviously uh, you know diving was the way to go and then someone suggested to me that I might want to check out these things called shipwrecks in the Great Lakes and since I was living in the Great Lakes Basin at that time um, seemed like a good idea and I think everyone that's listening and certainly you two guys can um, uh, can identify with the with the phrase from that point, I was hooked. Um, I think the the whole the whole thing the, the one thing that we have going for us in this area are those shipwrecks. Um, and certainly for me, that was it. Once I saw those, you know, I was I was I was done. And um, you know that w- that would have been around eighty nine ninety. So, and it's funny because I, I don't know about you guys, I'm, I'm a little older than you guys, but I do, uh, when I say 1990, I've got this picture in my head of it being just a couple of years ago. And of course it isn't. It's quite a while ago. So, yeah, a few years. Yeah. How about you guys? When did you guys get started diving? Well, I'll, I'm the easy one, which is probably about five, six years ago. Uh-huh. It's one of those things I'd always wanted to do it. A big Jacques Cousteau fan as a as a kid. 
that was the only way I could stay up late at night was on uh, nights when uh, the Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau was on. So oh, yeah. Maybe it may be a little subliminal reinforcement for my parents, and that got me into it. My dad was a scuba diver. Uh, he was in he was in the navy on uh, nuclear submarines and would take the advantage of some of the tropical locations to do some diving. But by the time I can really remember him, I, I remember seeing the gear in the attic. I don't think I ever saw him dive. Uh, but, but yeah, just about five years now. How about you, Jim? My first C card says location North Atlantic, and the year was 1983. Mm-hmm. And then we've got Mac, who's joined us. Hi, Mac. Hello. Hello. Uh, now, now, I think you're going to, like, add our times together and double it. When did you start? Well, my first real sea card was 1972. My first scuba tank was probably 67. And my first underwater with air supplied was 63. <laughs> Is that 18 or 19? You mean how old was I? No. No, I think he's talking about the century there, man. <laughs> Smart ass. But then again. <laughs> so, so, so Steve, when, when, once you got hooked, the, where did you go from there? So you, you went and saw some of the, little, the pretty shipwrecks? Yeah, so, so some of the pretty shipwrecks. And then um, much to my uh, chagrin, Someone, when I was a kid living in England, I was a dry caver. You know, I I did the, I did that crawling around in little limestone holes in the ground uh, for a, a novelty and uh, adventure. And someone said to me that um, that there were flooded caves in North Florida, and why not go down there? And that, you know, I as at that time, really some of the best, you know, the the beginnings of technical diving. We're in, we're in cave diving, and I went down there and did a, a cave course and fell in love with the caves. And I had originally gone down there, as so many people at that time did, just to, open quotes, become a better wreck diver. And, of course, the um, I now regard myself as a cave diver who gets to dive on wrecks or a <laughs> cave diver that doesn't get seasick is the way I put it sometimes. But, um, yeah, so that... that and from that point, I was completely, that was it. I was done. I just wanted to spend the rest of my life paddling around in the water and, uh, you know, blowing bubbles. Or not blowing bubbles, depending on what yeah. kind of kid you're wearing. But, um, yeah, so that's that was it. That was the end of me being a productive human being and an agile member of society. I was, I was done after that. You know. Now... Uh, so, so what was the progression from that? Did you eventually work your way up to, to being an instructor? Yeah, um, I part of my part of my daytime job was actually training, doing executive training, and um, you know, as is often the case, someone said, "Hey, you know, you'd you'd make a pretty good instructor," and I I uh, became an instructor. You know, did the you know did the dive master thing and all that, and became an instructor and, and started teaching technical programs. Um, Joined TDI when it first started. Uh, was with INTD before that briefly, and um, originally all I wanted to teach was nitrox because it seemed to make so much sense to me. And you know, putting it into perspective, at that time nitrox really—and this is what '93, '93, '94. At that time, nitrox was still voodoo gas. You know, it was 
it was banned in certain areas. And, you know, there were people who thought that by teaching regular scuba divers like, you know, the four of us and the people listening, by teaching us to use nitrox, we were going to uh, open the gates of hell and Beelzebub <laughs> would come. You know, it was really something else. Anyway, I, I started teaching that. And then eventually over the uh, course of the next few years, I, I really got into teaching. I, I enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, I, I guess worked my way up through the, the various levels to the point where I was, uh, you know, it was one of those, um, you know, what, what do you want to, what do you want to learn? Can I teach it? Well, yeah, I probably can, you know, um, became an instructor trainer and, um, uh, eventually just kind of thought to myself, well, I might as well do this full time. I'll retire from the, from the corporate world and, uh, I'll just, teach and dive and that's essentially what i did i i mean i uh, i still do a well i still do i i do a lot of consulting work my back in marketing so I, I still do a lot of consulting work in the industry and in related industries and uh i write a little bit so you know that's uh it 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 it, it keeps me very busy i don't think i've ever been as busy as i am now with various projects going on at the same time so all related to diving and paddling around in the water. But uh, I, I think I, I may have taken a wrong turn at some point because I should have been a travel writer, I think. Oh, wow. I, I understand that, uh, you know, that, that way you get to go to places a little more exotic than Chicago and uh, <laughs> Milwaukee and New Jersey. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's still opportunity there. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not complaining. It's better than uh, it's better than driving a coal truck, you know. Yeah, certainly. I think. So you, you you did some cave diving. You did some instructing. What got you on your first rebreather? Um, <laughs> my first experience on a rebreather was. Uh, was um, a guy that I know. I'm not going to name him because he, he might get into trouble. <laughs> but um, he strapped me into a rebreather, and it was quite a complicated one. It was a Cisluna, and um, uh, threw me into a cave. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I don't think I've ever been so terrified. Well, the, the only other time in my life that I can remember being as terrified was when a buddy of mine, who was an offshore powerboat. Uh, enthusiast took me for a ride around the Isle of Wight in his powerboat and um, it was about a 25 minute or 35 minute ride and um, man I can still remember every second of it I was petrified <laughs> and it was just it was the same deal on the on this rebuilder you know it was like ah oh, god damn you know there's so many things to look at and it was like uh, trying to, to, to my mind anyway, it was like trying to fl- fly a, uh, a, a Boeing 747 after, you know, only ever being in a glider before, you know. Um, but rebreathers were, I mean, were touted, you know, there was that period in the, in the 90s when, or mid 90s, when, uh, semi-closed circuit rebreathers were, you know, these, this was the new great thing. And of course, we all, I uh, got into those and tried those, and I got an instructor rating on one, and it was fun. Um, and again, you, you know, you were talking about what got you into scuba diving. As a kid, I remember watching Hans and Lottie Haas. They had a TV show on the BBC, 
and he was a famous Draeger rebreather diver. And of course, you know, as soon as I could get my hands on a Draeger, that again was one of those things. It was like a boy's own comics kind of thing. You know, you, you had this wonderful piece of kit that you'd seen pictures of on, uh, and seen on the television and here you were diving it, which was kind of cool. And then, um, I think eventually what happened was that I, I spent a long time before I really embraced uh, rebreathers as a tool to do the kind of stuff that I was doing. But eventually, over a, over a series of um, uh, experiences with rebreathers and wildlife, and it, it became pretty apparent to me that it was a it was a, a viable tool to do a job. I'm not one of those people that think it's uh, you know I still dive a lot of open circuit probably always will i don't think a rebreather is the is the you know the answer to all of our problems it's no pandora's box um oh no actually that would be the other way around wouldn't it <laughs> but um it is a bit of a pandora's box uh i think that um we do a great uh you know what, I, uh, I kind of call it the football team syndrome. And when I talk about football team, it's a soccer team to you guys. But um, you know that you get the fan who's, who says, you know, oh, man, Liverpool are the best football team in the world. They're the only football team in the world. And they rattle on and on and on about how good this team is. And when you look at their standings in the division, you see, well, currently they're standing number four. There's three teams that are better than them, at least, you know, <laughs> on paper. And I feel the same way about a piece of dive kit. You know, you'll get someone saying, oh, the only thing to dive is this, and you've got to have it set up this way, and you've got to do this, and you've got to have this color fin. And really and truly, um, that's nonsense. There's so many alternatives and so many different circumstances that you cannot possibly have a... Uh, you know, one solution that's going to be a, a silver bullet, an answer to all of your problems. And I, I hear so many people now talk about rebreathers as being the best thing. You know, you've got to be on a rebreather. And it's patent nonsense. Um, I shouldn't. I mean, I hate to say that to you know anyone listening that really wants to get into a rebreather. Yeah, by all means, check it out. But uh, I can't imagine myself ever not having an open circuit kit somewhere, you know. Yeah, they, There's something to be said for strapping a single cylinder on your back and jumping in the water and having a little yeah. paddle around. You know? Yeah, well, like uh, we, we've got what we call our Minutemen. You know, Mac, why don't you tell them what that is? That's when you have your kit ready to go, and if you get a call, you can be on the road in 30 minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for, for those impromptu dives that you, you didn't plan in the morning, but you decide in the afternoon, it's just perfect conditions. So that's it's mm-hmm. one of the nice side effects probably of open circuit is to be able to do that a little, little less well, prep. Yeah. There's still something and uh, Mac, you'll, I, I think you'll agree with me on this. Um, it, there is something to be said for literally jumping into the, into the water. Uh, it could be off a boat on a reef or whatever with a, a you know, a, a 40 cu- cubic foot bottle on, under your arm and just a regulator on it and no SPG, no weights, no suit, nothing. Just jump in the water and swim around. I mean, that's the closest we ever get to, you know, freestyling. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's how we started. Huge, yeah, exactly. You know. Um, do you I, remember, I just remember when, when they someone came out first gave you an SPG? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, we, there's a lot of stuff. You, 
Um, and it's nice. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. And I don't want to sound like, you know, we used to swim uphill to school both ways, you know. <laughs> but we have come a, a long, long way with the reliability of kit and the things that are available to us to make our diving that much more enjoyable and that, that much safer. And we can talk about personal dive computers and dry suits and reliable regulators. But, you know, one of the other things that's really cool and I know that I know all of you guys uh, have got these or or use them. That's a GoPro, like a little tiny oh. digital movie camera. Where would we be? I mean, you know, where, how many people have been turned on? Have had that you know Hans Haas experience by going onto YouTube and seeing someone's shots of a, I don't know a hammerhead shark or whatever that's been taken on a GoPro. What a great tool to introduce people to the joys of being underwater. Yeah. that It's kind of like the same way with the camera on your cell phone. You, you, yeah. There's no reason not to have it with you all the time and just turned on. And maybe nine, nine hours you have nothing to show, but that one special fish or object that you didn't anticipate you now have video for. That's right. That's right. And I was talking to a buddy. Um, he lives in Rochester in New York. And we all know what Rochester used to be famous for, you know, that company called Kodak. Yep. And we were talking about point-and-shoot cameras, digital camera. Mm-hmm. How many of you have a point-and-shoot digital camera? Like a standalone point-and-shoot digital camera? I've got one. Yeah. yeah. It hasn't been out of the drawer for years. And I've got in my hand, you know, a... Uh, uh, a Galaxy Note, you know, Galaxy 3 Note, a Samsung you know, telephone, supposedly, that has one of the best point-and-shoot cameras <laughs> I've ever seen. I mean, this thing is remarkable. Well, and, and what's amazing is on that particular camera or phone is just take a quarter of that image and blow it up as big as you can, and it's still amazingly sharp. Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, Actually, I've not got the specs, but it's something like, I think, I want to say 14 megapixels. You know, yeah. 14, and, uh, you know, I mean, oh, man. The, um, what is the black, what is the, the, the new uh, GoPro? The, the, uh, the, the black? The black, yeah. Yeah, that, that one will do 4K, <clears throat> and I think it's like, when, when you get up to 4K, the frame rate drops to just under 30 frames a second. I think it's like 20-some. But that that's absolutely amazing resolution. I mean, that's better than high def TV. Yeah, yeah. And you know, as as you said, you don't really have to do much to make it work. You just you know stick it on your hat and down you go. Yeah, pretty cool. Now you mentioned you had done a little bit of writing. I understand that you've got a couple of books out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, uh, I just, I. I you know, my background is as a writer, really. I mean, I, I worked in advertising, and I used to be a copywriter in advertising agencies. And I've always written articles, and I, I've written a few textbooks. I used to work for an agency, um, you know, producing textbooks. And uh, I still freelance a little and, and write for – I still write the odd textbook for uh, various agencies. And um, a few years ago, uh, I published a book called The Six Skills – and uh, other discussions, and it was um, ostensibly I wrote it because I wanted to have a, a working book, a textbook that I could use when I was teaching that touched on some of the things 
that I did not see in, you know, run-of-the-mill textbooks. Um, stuff that on the surface, forgive the pun, but on the surface kind of comes across as maybe a little bit odd, you know, because the six skills, one of them is breathing, you know, go figure, you got to keep breathing. But, you know, the, 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 if we look at breathing more deeply, you know, we understand that that first rule of scuba diving, never hold your breath. If we just extrapolate from that and we say, well, always have something appropriate to breathe, we were doing some work this about 10 or 12 13 years ago we're doing some work for the government in brazil and we were we were exploring some caves anyway long story but in one we had a we had a fish scientist with them and we discovered a fish a new species of fish and when we got out of the water he said for christ's sake don't tell the government about this because they'll shut the bloody cave down and we won't be able to go back in there. So, you know, so I don't know if anyone ever owned up to the fact that we found this, um, this unique fish in this cave system, but, uh, you know, we did. And it was completely albino, um, completely without pigment. So yeah. it was kind of a weird-looking fish. It looked like a, a kid's anatomical model, you know, floating around in the water. Wow. Oh, look, there's its stomach. There's its intestine. Yeah, really weird stuff. Now, why did you wind up trying an electro lung, a Beckman? Because. So I mean, it's not that long ago for you to do that. That's an old thing. <laughs> I know, but we have a, we have a customer who, um, it's the, the you know, they're, they're a military, uh, uh, division and one of the guys who leads the team, is a real aficionado of old rebreather technology. He's got, he's got Dragas, he's got Electrolungs, he's got, um, all kinds of stuff from the, uh, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, all the way up to, you know, he's got frogs, he's got all sorts of stuff, which is really kind of cool, you know, um, and, uh, it's all highly sp- speculative. I mean, some of this, stuff uh, including the electrolungs because of their uh, uh should we say their reputation but you know trying it all it's it's very much a question of going into the pool and kind of putting your head underwater and trying it so that if anything happens you can stand up real quick you just don't hear too many people re- remember what a electrolung was I mean, they remember Beckman because Beckman's still in existence now for uh, scientific test equipment. Yeah. And no, I wasn't Navy. Mm-hmm. But I went to a commercial dive school, and it was uh, oh, basically okay. run by the Coast Guard. Right. Captain Al Micklow. He's one of the guys who first designed some of the uh, one atmospheric suits. Mm-hmm. And we had that in, in our class, and that was state of the art back then. Yeah. It, you know, the 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 odd thing about rebreathers for a lot of people, especially, you know, people who are new to diving and they're still learning the history or um, what have you, um, is that rebreather technology predates open circuit technology mm-hmm. by yeah. all the magnitude, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, so it's, it's, it's funny to, um, to see the, uh, their eyes light up when you kind of say, well, yeah, you know, um, there was, uh, you know, there were rebreathers around uh, during the First World War, Second World War, you know, and uh, yeah, kind of cool. 
Now, kind of back on to the, the book, you were mentioning six. Six skills. Yeah, these six skills and other discussions is the name of the first book. Anyway, we're talking about breathing. And I was saying, you know, if you, if you take using breathing as an example of a, you know, one of the skills, and of course, there's a lot more to breathing than just breathing in and out. But the one thing about it, and this is, you know, one of those tips because people always, a new diver always says, well, what tips can you give me? What skills do I have to think about? And of course, most of the skills in diving, as you guys know, because you've been at it for a while, it's all mental. You know, the physical stuff, yeah, that'll come. But the mental stuff, if you don't get that, you're never going to advance. You know, it's going to be self-policing if you can't relax. And I always try to say to people, if you can control your breathing, you'll never panic. You'll never lose it if you can control your breathing. And it's that, you know, do martial arts breathing, do yoga breathing, whatever it is. And if you have the skill of breathing and controlling your breathing, you'll be a better diver. Full stop. Uh, Mac, have you ever, have you ever, um, you know, lost track of your breathing on the water? Have you ever, have you ever found that you're over breathing a regulator from, you know, uh, from overwork or anything like that? Yeah. And the, the first thing we learned is as soon as you realize you're, you're doing that, you stop. Yeah. Close your eyes and, and just, calm down mm-hmm. and it makes a big difference yeah yeah it really does and uh anyway so that was that was that book you know that that, that book goes into the you know the six skills and uh it's available on amazon folks um and then uh uh just this january i was working on another project um and a, a friend of mine phoned me up uh, just before Dima, you know, it was end of September, and he said, you know what would be a good idea for a book? If you could put a book out that had in it about risk management for diving. He said, because too many people are dying, you know, too many people are getting into trouble. It's like, you know, it's it's just ridiculous. And So I actually revisited the um, the uh, parameters that are, were originally put out by Sheck Exley, who, as you guys know, were was a, a cave explorer, a very famous, um, almost uh, legendary cave explorer. And um, kind of revisiting the, the parameters or the guidelines that he had originally published and uh, put them into a book form. And uh, it was launched uh, beginning of January, and it's been doing really well. And it's got the very catchy title of Staying Alive. And if you remember the 70s and the Bee Gees, you'll, uh, you'll yeah. have that song going through your heads right now. Um, and the, the, the subtitle for it is Risk Management Techniques for Advanced Scuba Dive. You know, it's, uh, but um, it got great reviews. And like I say, it's, I'm very pleased it's selling. The, the thing that I'm pleased about is my hope is that all the bullshit that's inside it might actually make someone think twice about doing something really stupid. And if it does that for one person, the effort I put into it is all worthwhile. I know that sounds a bit Pollyanna, but you know, you've got to have you gotta have something to keep you going. Yeah. Because if you guys have ever worked on a book, you know it'd be a very thankless task. You know? <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a lot of work going in the books. Luckily for me that there's a lot of people who, mm-hmm. who want to write them because that's a part of my day job is publishing. So 
getting that ink on the the paper does does a lot of things. Pays for my scuba diving. Mm-hmm. There you go. That's that's the way it is. And of course, uh, you know, they, they, there's another. We're talking about technology and you know, technology and diving and technology and and things related to diving, um, and about risk and about other things, but about risk, the manufacturing parameters, the 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 quality assurance that uh, scuba equipment enjoys now is so different to what it was you know, when it, when this hobby first came out. I mean, in the 60s and 70s, the, the kit then was very, very different to what we have now in in many ways. And of course, one of them is manufacturing tolerance. Um, so we, 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 we've enjoyed or we enjoy the benefits of that. But um, the other thing that I'm, I'm always fascinated by is dive lights. And uh, Matt, do you, what was your first dive light? You know, what was the first light you ever took underwater? Can you describe that? Um, Did you say the first light? Yeah. The, yeah, the first light. God, I got to go back and remember. <laughs> was that a road flare? More or less, yeah. <laughs> Actually, you can use that. A candle we, in a plastic bag. We had those military ones. We had those military ones to do, but uh-huh. I'm trying to remember. Basically, we just took a freaking flash, used it, and, and dropped it into uh, like liquid rubber, and that's mm-hmm. how you sealed it, or we did. Yeah. That was a cheap way to do it. You still there? Yeah, we're still here. I think we lost Jim, but uh, okay. the, the rest of us are on. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get Jim back here. Um, so, so uh, Mac, do you you just took a flashlight and you did you kind of goop it up? Yeah, I just took a regular military flashlight or a battle lantern, which is semi waterproof, and then you use that whatever liquid adhesive you'd have those days, and you just go around the rims of your of your light, you know your your where your lens was because. Battle lanterns had had good seals on it, so you didn't have to do as much with it. But with the light, you we just sealed everything up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, not very efficient compared to the high intensity lights we have nowadays or LEDs. Oh, but L- better yeah. than nothing. Uh, LEDs, yeah. they're just amazing, and that's relatively recent that those have gotten as good as they are. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's a new generation of of LEDs coming out as well, which are much more efficient. But yeah, the the amount of light they throw. You are now joining the call. Talk Recorded live. You are unmuted. Yay! Okay, well, let's, let's talk real quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talk fast. Go, go at a one and a half times normal speed. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So maybe maybe the technology doesn't like us talking about old technology. You know, maybe that's yeah, that's that, that could have been it. With selling it, get it gets jealous. Something I don't know. Well, it sounded like a bunch of old men talking about. I remember when all we yeah, needed to be is the pub there with a couple of beers, and we'd have some good old times. Yeah, that would be great. And it, there's <laughs> a, that Monty Python sketch about the the four Yorkshiremen. You know. We lived in a shoebox. You were lucky to have a shoebox. We lived in a, <laughs> in a pothole in the road. You know. Anyway, um, the other 
thing. I mean, that I I wanted to um, bring you guys uh, awareness uh, up on, and that is, you guys are always welcome to turn up at you know one of the one of the tech programs or one of the the tech weeks that we uh, that we run. I'm, I'm doing one this um, May in Gilboa Quarry, which is. Uh, not that close to you guys, but at least it's in Ohio. It, it, it's a worthy dive to go to. Well, Gilboa. they do the meet and greet. You're going to be there at the meet and greet? Um, now, when is the meet and greet? I don't think they posted the date yet, but it's usually there in the uh, late aut- or late spring or early summer. Yeah, well, that's the Great Lakes Wrecking Crew does that, doesn't it? Well, that's the, the ones we hear about. That's what date I go with. Okay, I, I, and I know some of the guys in that in that mob, so I might be there. Now, this one I'm talking about is on May 20 to 25 at Gilboa, and it's kind of a you know a, 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 well a tech week for for one of a better a better term, and the other one is at um, in Pennsylvania, which is is a long way for you guys, and that's in June. That's June uh, 10 to 15, and that one's called redefining the limits um but the um the gilboa event um certainly you can you can do a search on facebook and, and find something out about that one yeah yeah gilboa is actually where i did my open water i like gilboa i mean yeah. I, it you know it's a nice site there's a lot of stuff to see there um I love Mike. The whole management structure there, I think, is is pretty cool, and the, the facilities themselves are, are um, yeah, they're, they're, they're very good. Gives gives and you he a always nice, manages to keep it clean. Yeah, and you got a good variety of diving. If you want to stay shallow, you've uh-huh. got plenty to see. And if you need to te- to work on some tech skills, you've got a nice depth to play around in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It's a. It's a. It's. It's a it's a great site. Uh, I think there's a there's a lot of stuff uh, there to play on. Um, I mean, I particularly like the uh, the fact that there's a couple of swim throughs there, and um, uh, you know you can do a lot of stuff without getting too deep or without getting too cold. You know, it's it's great. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to look that one up. I'll have to see what my schedule's like. Got some vacation time to burn this year, so sometime that mm-hmm. might not be too bad. Yeah, well, it'd be good to see you guys again. Now see you... if we can get you permanently hooked on one of those rebreather things. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm sure that I. I don't need a whole lot of convincing. I just have to have a whole lot of funds. Yeah, that's, yep. that's I, the other thing. I hear you. Yeah, in the, in the chat room, well. While we were having our technical difficulties, they were they were requesting that I post a picture of my wetsuit. There's uh, my wetsuit's getting a little bit raggedy, which I, I think you got to see it. Yeah, Steve. I did. Yeah, yeah. so it's uh, and that's why they invented mind bleach. You know, that's uh... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you got anything to plug before we jump on to the news segment of the program? Not really. I mean, yeah, the books. Uh, the books. If people want to uh, want to get them, they'll find them on Amazon. And as I say, one's called the Six Skills, and the other one's called Staying Alive. And you know, any any contributions are always uh, gratefully accepted. And um, 
you know, as I always say, uh, part of my shtick is to educate and to inform. And if anyone's got questions, uh, ask away or search me out on Facebook. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm always willing to, if I've got an answer that makes sense, I'm always willing to share it. And even if I haven't got an answer, I'm willing to share that too, you know. Well, well, thank you so much. And we appreciate having you on. And I know we only scratched the surface of the stories because uh, there's, there's a bunch that we didn't even get to. Yeah, well, most of them are embarrassing for me. But uh, <laughs> you know, when we talk about rebreathers, I think I mentioned to you guys, my my favorite re- inter- interaction with wildlife rebreather story is the time I had two students in the Bahamas and we were doing the last dive of their rebreather class. And I was a little ahead of them and I felt one of them tugging at my leg and looked around and I was being uh, accosted by a turtle. He, he decided that with the rebreather on, I looked like a female turtle, and uh, <laughs> I'm just glad that none of my guys had uh, had a camera. GoPros, on. yeah, that's it. Yeah, everybody. Luckily, they weren't wearing See, one. So ne- next time you go diving with Steve Lewis, you need a GoPro. That's where you're going to get it's, all the good, the good that's video. It exactly. That's it exactly. And then what we'll also do is we'll put some links for anybody who wants to find out your book or what you're doing on there website uh, www.scubaobsessed.com and you can it'll link over to Steve's books and I'll, I'll send you a couple of links to put up there that'd be great certainly so let's go ahead and jump on into the news scroll back up to the news section yeah, I gotta go find that now yeah it's it's, it's been a little bit uh, this this first article mystery illness decimates sea star population there's a follow-up from last week and it, it seems to be that it's continuing going on and for those who don't know there's a mysterious condition that seems to be killing uh, sea stars uh, commonly known as starfish and this is uh, seems to be in a, the Pacific coast of North America and it's been uh, noticed all the way from Alaska down to Baja California they said that the uh, that the local populations were it wouldn't be any difficulty at all to see several hundred they're now just seeing a handful of sea stars. Um, they said other types of organisms are not experiencing similar death rates, so they're still not quite sure what it is. Uh, the, some thoughts are that it might be a pathogen, a bacteria, or a virus, uh, as opposed to broader environmental condition. Uh, some inland waters have been hit hard by the die-off, while other areas such as the harbors uh, by uh, Wibley Island still have healthy populations. So it's kind of bad. Is there is there a depth issue there too? Did they say that? I I think I remember not from this episode. They're not saying anything, but uh, the previous week that it, it was kind of everywhere. You know, all depths. Now this is giving us an indication that there's certain waters where it hasn't happened. You know, my gut's saying that it's either you know something with the bacteria a bloom that's been spreading that the sea stars can't handle the bacteria or there's some sort of uh, virus that's being spread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's pretty significant if it goes all the way from Alaska down to Baja. Yeah. So whatever it is, is freaking serious. Yeah. And if it's doing snails, or uh, not snails, but starfish, uh, what else is it doing? Yeah, and the, it, uh, I think I saw some saying sea cucumbers was another one. But uh, what we need to do is we need to have uh, Lord James... Uh, from the West Coast, I, I need to look her up and see if she'll come on and, 
and uh, maybe she can get some give us a little bit of insight. She's one of the early divers to notice it. I I heard that uh, one of the one of the theories behind uh, behind the die off is that it may be something uh, yeah, from the uh, uh, Fukushima uh, meltdown. That's uh, some kind of radiation that's getting into the water. That would be um, that would be a, an odd one. I mean, the fact that it's only hitting the sea stars though is kind of well. That would be odd, and then also kind of the properties of you know we're in a nuclear part of the the state, uh, and just the the properties of a, of radiation and it, it just you know water really dampens it, so it's going to be hard with the dilution for something to get to that level. I mean, you, you can't rule anything out until you figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, let's see. Next up we have, oh, let me, I think I got these out of order. Satellite. So uh, satellite can spot underwater volcanic eruptions. This is the uh, Oregon State University scientists discovered how to pinpoint the time and place of underwater volcanic eruptions using just satellite images. Uh, They say some volcanic eruptions take place hundreds of feet below water and show no changes on the sea surface to the naked eye. Um, This is according to Robert O'Malley. He says it's amazing that orbiting satellites can detect color changes that indicate an eruption that has taken place. Many times you can't spot the eruption if you're floating over it in a boat. Uh, they said, I would, I would hope I couldn't tell if I was floating over a volcano erupting in my boat. I, <laughs> I much prefer not to know that, and maybe I can get the hell away before it makes itself known. Yeah. I, I think what they're getting at, these are like very deep in the water, and it must be that they're detecting you know, the, the slight pH or, uh, or chemical changes uh, by the color or reflectivity of, the, of probably the plume as it's coming up. Says uh, we measured sunlight going into the ocean, interacting with particles consistent with underwater volcanic eruptions. Uh, they're pointing out that satellite measurements are made on the planet every day, so this method provides another tool spotting these dramatic events that affect the life in our oceans. NSA probably could tell us that, though. Well, matter of <laughs> fact, they're NS- NSAS satellites. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe that's what it is. Well, uh, if you can track that volcano like that, then you know they can track. The plume generated by those submarines out there. Oh, yeah. You can infer a lot of things that can be discovered with those satellites. Well, I know for uh, for, for submarines, they were just, if the submarine was moving, they it would uh, create a, a rise in the water above the submarine, and that's how they detect them many times. Uh, research was funded by NASA's Ocean Biology and Geochemistry Program, and then it was published in the Journal of Remote Sensing of the environment. So I'm, and I'm sure if you're really into scientific technical reading, uh, they've got an in-depth study there. Now it may be able to spot volcanoes, but I wonder if it's going to see something else you can see from space. Uh, they always say you can see the great wall of China. Now with great tunnel of China is being proposed. Beijing plans to work on the world's largest or longest underwater passage at a paltry $40 billion. Cheap at twice the price. Yeah, it's going to be twice the breathers there. Yeah, it'll be planned to be twice the length of the Channel Tunnel, or or do they call that Channel over there? Channel, Channel, or is that just what we call it? (laughs) That connects the uh, UK and France. Uh, It's going to be a 123 kilometer tunnel run from the northern city of 
uh, Dalen and Yantai on the East Coast. They said work could begin as early as 2015 or 2016. Hmm. And this is from the Chinese Academy of Engineering. It How will, deep are they talking for that, did they say? Uh, da, 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 let's see. 100 feet below the seabed. So you're already... Yeah, because they're, 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 they're concerned they, uh, they're going to do three shafts, one for cars, one for trains, and one for maintenance, which is sounds pretty similar to what the channel did. Yeah, but they have a lot more earthquakes and stuff there, I think. I'd be a little bit leery of that. Yeah, they said that it will it'll go across two major fault lines, one of which in 1976 had a 7.5 uh, magnitude earthquake. Uh, they're going to... Uh, have a route that goes underneath islands and they'll have uh, vertical shafts dug on the islands to provide ventilation. That's the ones like the train track starting from east and west. You want to get your coordinates really good so they match up and not be off by two feet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a lot of mileage. It's 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 a quite a bit, but they're going to say it's going to shave off, uh, let's see here, this is like over a thousand miles. That they normally wow. have to drive. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, now miles up. One thousand two hundred eighty kilometers off the the current journey between those two cities. Wow. Hmm. So big. So now it's going to be underwater, but I, I don't see that they're going to have a whole lot of scuba divers needed for it. Yeah, but they'll have a lot of pressure, you know, case on diving. They could. Yeah, I, um, I saw that little note that said the building of the 50.4-kilometer channel tunnel dug between 1987 and 1991. What is that channel for? Or is that the, is that the one they're talking about for yeah, that's a, that, that's a England to, yeah. to France? Yeah. 87, yeah. 88, 9, 91. That was a couple of years. Yeah, it, it took a little bit. Yeah. And they and they say that they've the technology for the tunnel boring machines has really improved, so they're counting on uh, some benefits uh, from that. And and it seems like after that uh, that channel tunnel was dug, that everybody got into using these uh, TBMs tunnel boring machines. Well, you know the out here at Cook where they were looking to put out the intakes yeah. over a mile, uh, they were going to use the same type, if not the same one that was used in the channel. To go yeah. straight down to bedrock under, and then do a ninety degree shift and go out. Yeah, we almost had some of that close by. That'd have been mm. neat. Uh, I'm, I'm. Even though I know it's not current, maybe someday they'll resurrect that project. Yeah. And then, will the buildings of the future be grown underwater? This is really fascinating. This is one of those things that just makes you kind of. Shake your head. This is incredible. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pitching the use of a bio-rock that will grow entirely underwater. Whole office blocks will begin to lift uh, from the seafloor. So this, I, I think they do a little bit of this now in uh, reef preservation or, or recreation where they can run current out in the water, and, the, and the, they've actually shown that the, the coral... Or reefs will attract right to it. Hmm. And then they said the past designers have tended to focus on just a few examples like termite mines and shell structures. 
I really think nature holds the answer to making buildings that are fit for the next billion years. Uh, they're investigating the biomimicry design potentials. He thinks that the solution's already out there lurking in the rich stream of natural evolution waiting to be mined. Uh, I don't think we're patient enough. No. But, a, but an interesting idea. And then you see he shows some, they have a bio-rock pavilion in this article. They're showing, if you go, you scroll down a little bit, you can see or they, they have a model that shows what could be grown. And they said that would take only 18 months. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then we've got the Hunley. We have the 150th anniversary of the sinking of the Hunley passed just in this last week. And it looks like they finally got the Hunley out of the uh, preservation tank. Or is this just a momentary changing of the water that they had here in the photo? I don't know, but it looks like it's on blocks, and you know, it really does look like it's out, doesn't it? Yeah, they because it was you when we had gone to uh, Charleston, you were able to see it, and it was kind of in the tank there. Mm -hmm. uh, but now it looks like they've got it up. That's a pretty wide angle shot of it too, because it makes it look like it's a hundred foot long. Yeah, it, it, it looks like a, a World War II vintage submarine yeah. in the shot. Yeah, uh, you, you almost need to have somebody standing next to it to give you a sense of scale because that <laughs> was yeah. there was not a lot of room in there. Well, I don't All I know is, I was going to say, I know I could not get to the con on that one. No. Yeah, but the guys were a lot smaller back then. I, I think they were. Well, you know, thinking about it, even <laughs> back in 1950, the average height and weight for an American adult was five foot six, 160 pounds. Mm. Yeah, I remember when and, I took architecture, it was uh, they that was. Uh, the five five foot eight was considered to be the average height, you know, and I, and I felt like a giant, you know, I was I was taller than that, but now I think I'm a midget. Mm. Of course, you lose a few inches too over over time. Uh, they the scientists say they're not a hundred percent sure yet why the Hunley sank, but last year's research maintain buoyancy. announced a new theory: the torpedo. Well, <laughs> what what they're what they're yeah, yeah. <laughs> good one, Mac. Uh, what, what they're thinking is that the uh, evidence is showing that it may have been only 20 feet away from the hull of the ship it was trying to sink when the explosion went off. And they're basing this on the damage to the spar that held the explosive. Mm. Other theories had been posed that the Hunley crew ran out of air before they could return to the harbor. So, yes, 150 years. Yeah, this other, this other shot shows it in the water on the, the CNN selection of photos they've got a whole group of them okay and then we've got the is that is that it for the news i tried to keep it short this week now, our apologies to steve we seem to have some technical issues and we can't get them back uh we're gonna blame the weather i think the the ground's a little soggy and things are just not acting up the way they should uh, i think currently uh i can't connect to talk show i can't connect to anything so uh, we'll, we'll have to have him back on. He's certainly got plenty of stories for us, and we'll try and connect and do some, some diving with him. It was it was a blast last time we did. Mac, you didn't get to go, so you'll have to go this next time. It, it, no, is he the one who presented the materials on your rebreathers? Yeah, he presented the, re the material on the okay. rebreathers, and he actually 
took us down and held our hands and made sure we didn't kill ourselves. Taught us how to reset the alarms when the batteries died. and mm-hmm. So uh, a wealth of knowledge. Yeah. It, it seems like anybody we can who has a little bit of different experience than we do, we certainly can learn something from. Oh, yeah. It doesn't cost anything to learn from somebody else and, and let them make the mistakes and learn what not to do. Yeah, so thanks again, Steve, for coming on, and, and we'll have him back on again. Uh, I think we're just going to end it, uh, end the, the news portion. I, I had a few more kind of hanging out in there. We had the video of the week was the California scuba divers interacting with the octopus. Uh, they were another case of the octopus and the cameraman fighting over the camera. Uh, it seems like we got one of those about once a year. Somebody's has a video like that. I would have liked to seen him in the uh, turtle, though. <laughs> the turtle. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, it just goes to show us that we need to have GoPro cameras just about everywhere. Actually, no, but, you know, there used to be that old adage, what what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That was way <laughs> before GoPros. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think there's anything that's not being recorded about 20 different angles. Let's see. So I think what we'll do is we'll jump to that time. Uh, like like to thank uh, all the networks that we're on. We're also we, we're being broadcast on Stitcher Smart Radio. If you haven't signed up, go ahead and listen on Stitcher. You put in the term scuba and you'll connect right on in. We're the Scuba Obsessed. You can search. We're also on iTunes. Uh, and we are on the WRVO Radio, uh, an outdoor radio network streaming live. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Thank Rich Fiala for putting us on that network. Uh, if you have any feedback, you can send it to the show at Scoob Obsessed. We are on Twitter at Scoob Obsessed. Also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scoob Obsessed. We're also on Google Plus, which I still haven't figured out how I'm really supposed to use that. www.google.com forward plus Scoob Obsessed. And I think we are to that point of the show. And in right. honor of the weather we're having, uh, you can say, you know, here we go. Uh, a trucker stops at a red light and a blonde catches up. She jumps out of the car, runs up the truck, knocks on the door. The trucker lowers the window and says, hi, my name is Heather, and you're losing some of your load. The trucker ignores her and proceeds down the road. When the truck stops at another red light, the girl catches up again. She jumps out of the car, runs up, and knocks on the door again. The trucker lowers the window as if they had never spoken. The uh, the blonde says brightly, Hi, my name's Heather, and you're losing some of your load. Shaking his head, the trucker ignores her again, continues down the street. The third time, the red light. The same thing happens. Out of breath, the blonde gets out of her car, runs up, knocks on the door, and the trucker lowers the window. Again, she says, Hi, my name's Heather, and you're losing some of the load. When the light turns green, the trucker revs up the engine, races the next light. When he, see, when he stops this time, he hurriedly gets out of the truck, runs back to the blonde's car, knocks on her window, and she lowers it. He says, hi, my name's Kevin. It's winter here in Michigan, and I'm driving the salt truck. And if you're in Michigan, you understand that joke. <laughs> <laughs> if you're in Florida, maybe not. You might not get it. <sighs> no offense to the blondes, but... There you go. So until next week, hopefully with a better connection and not so damp, go out there and get wet. And stay safe, guys and gals. <laughs>